Hello, everyone, and welcome to As We Like It, your favorite Shakespeare movie interpretation discussion podcast. I'm John. I'm Avon. And I'm Mark. All right, so last time we discussed 10 Things I Hate About You, which is the Taming the Shrew. I don't personally have any follow-up. Do you guys? I don't think so. Do you? No, I don't think so. I think we covered everything we needed covered to. everything yep. I wanted to say. Yep. All right. Well, that was easy. So let's move <laughs> right on to our discussion of Much Ado About Nothing. This was the 1993 version directed by, adapted by, and starring Kenneth Branagh, uh, Emma Thompson, Denzel Washington, Keanu Reeves, uh, Kate Beckinsale. It was apparently her first film role. Brian Blessed. <laughs> Brian Blessed, too. Never leave out Brian Blessed. He'll come for you. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry. I, I did not mean to. No, it's a tiny role, but, <laughs> but he's one of my favorite actors. And uh, who was uh, Robert Sean Leonard, a young Robert mm-hmm. Sean Leonard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, Michael Caine. No, Michael, uh, no Keaton. Michael Keaton. Keaton. Sorry, Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton. Yeah. As, they both yeah. appeared in Batman movies but <laughs> in different capacities. Sorry, Michael Keaton. I was actually at work yesterday. I was talking about how I just watched this movie, and my manager was like, oh, Michael Keaton, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which is funny because my manager is the kind of guy who's like really into metal music and heavy wrestling. <laughs> but he... So yeah. the fact that he just like randomly knew a single Shakespeare movie based on... Michael you Keaton's know. role, small but important role in it. <laughs> As it turns out, he's a big Shakespeare fan. His favorite huh. Shakespeare movie is Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. Ah, oh, really? Well, we could talk about that one on another day. I'm not sure I could um, quite go along with him on that myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, John, you're the one who hadn't watched this before. Mark and I had, are, it's an old favorite of ours. So I want to hear your reaction. Okay. Uh, my reaction is Emma Thompson is just the best yeah oh absolutely <laughs> absolutely the best um especially when beatrice is being uh snippy i guess is, is mm-hmm. a polite way to say it it's impossible to tell where emma thompson stops and the character begins yeah i a part of me thinks that she's just kind of that naturally fierce but i absolutely loved her performance um, I will also say that a young Robert Sean Leonard, very good looking. I don't mm-hmm. know what happened. <laughs> it's a little mean to say that, but in like, you know, house, he's just not that attractive. Mm-hmm. And um, I really liked the movie. Good. There are a couple of things that I don't think worked, like mm-hmm. Keanu Reeves trying to act. Yeah, yeah we'll have to talk about that in some detail because there's a whole thing about that. Yeah, that's the, the, the comment that I think is most often made about this film is... Mm-hmm. My God, Keanu. <laughs> Why, Keanu? <laughs> uh, thankfully, Don John's role is largely minimized. Uh, it was beautiful, and I, mm-hmm. I will always watch a movie that's filmed in a, in a Renaissance villa. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say uh, about Keanu, to be fair, it's not a great part. It's one of Shakespeare's weaker villains, I would say. Yeah, I was thinking that when we watched, and we should talk about this some other time, but when we watched the um, recent... Uh, Joss Whedon Much Ado in which the actor playing Don John has no none of the problems that Keanu has as an actor and I thought and I watched I thought no it's actually just a shitty role like that's a big part of it it's really hard to it's play it in poorly motivated yeah and it fit, so does even not, a great actor is going to struggle with that part and it does not fit into the rest of the tone and no. mood very well at all like it's it is really hard to pull off I think I don't think I think it can be pulled off better than than then, it was yeah, in, that, yeah. in this one <laughs> but I think some of that was direction choices too so yeah there there was a little bit that I felt slightly overdone and that was Dogberry <laughs> <laughs> Michael Keaton's performance felt a little too theatrical hmm. for the rest of the movie mm. the only other bit that felt theatrical as compared to filmic mm-hmm. to me was the wedding Right, the first right, wedding. Right, yeah, because right. it was staged so much, almost on a, on a theater stage, almost. So my first question is: Have you by any chance seen the 1973 Stanley Kubrick classic Barry Lyndon? No, no. Nope. <laughs> it's one of my favorite movies. It's considered a lesser Kubrick. Uh, to briefly sum it up, it's based on uh, a book by William Makepeace Thackeray. Mm. And it's kind of a picaresque tale during the Napoleonic Wars that was shot 
and natural lighting almost exclusively. So all of the interior scenes were filmed by candlelight. Um, it's, so because of that, it's just an incredibly beautiful movie. Uh, you know, Kubrick being such a stickler. But what I like about the movie is it's it takes its time. It's three hours long. It has an intermission. Mm-hmm. And the plotting in that movie is very specific. And there's this one scene about two-thirds of the way through where there's this major fight between two of the characters. Mm-hmm. And because the plotting has been so kind of slow, the buildup to this fight, which you know is coming, is just kind of dreadful. And the fight itself is presented in such stark, uh, violent, um, in such you know such a violent way compared to the rest of the movie that it's really truly shocking, mm-hmm. and I was really strongly reminded of that scene when watching the wedding, um, watching Claudia's what he did. So I don't know if that is supposed to be uh, an homage to Barry Lyndon, but to me it definitely felt like it was. Yeah, that scene is definitely played quite brutally, um, mm-hmm. and it almost makes it hard to believe that they could be reconciled after that yeah it makes i mean it is it is really horrifying i think suddenly as you say and i i don't know the, the, the movie you're referencing but in terms of the way it stands out in tone against the movie so far you know you suddenly because there has been no violence there's been no anything and then there's just absolutely um exactly horrifying moment because one of the things about the play is it's it's all about this sort of double plotting. The, the background is this kind of civil war, essentially, this um, uprising from, uh, you know, with, with Don John. Um, and it's sort of double plotted by the, the merry war between Beatrice and Benedict. And um, in a sense, you want that, that sort of lighter sort of main plot to remain fair fairly light mm-hmm. um and yet the mechanics of the plot that the hero claudio plot require seeming tragedy yeah so it yeah. can't be as light you know it, if you made it really light and then it's like oh and now she's dead haha that would also <laughs> be bizarre and yeah. un, unmotivated there is a lot of balancing to do i i will say that this is actually the first work we've discussed i mean first mm-hmm. of three is not really that <laughs> much of a touchstone i have actually never read much do about nothing right it had somehow escaped me this entire time and i thought about reading it before watching the movie but i decided since i i had picked up that this was a fairly faithful interpretation i decided mm-hmm. that i would watch the movie kind of just to see it through fresh eyes yeah i think that was probably a, a good choice because uh it gives you a different perspective than we have too so I will say, and I don't know if this is a criticism of the movie or a criticism of the play, Hero felt underdeveloped to me. She um, um, is, <laughs> I think is the quick yeah. answer. It's not, a, it's not a major role in the play. Um. There's very little of her speeches cut. Let's okay. put it that way. Uh, there's, I mean, there's a little bit, but much less of her is cut than of other characters. So there's very little extra they could have given her. To develop her more. Okay, that's fair. What was cut? So I went, I hadn't read it in a while, so I went and skimmed, read through it quickly after we watched it. And it's interesting. There are, as far as I can tell, no major scenes cut. Uh, There's a couple of little half scenes. Much more, it's almost every speech is cut. Hmm. At least a little bit. Like, lines are cut all the way through. So to give you an example, just taking from the very opening, uh, you get the the play opens with Leonardo holding a letter. I learned in this letter that Don Pedro of Aragon comes this night to Messina. Okay, it's exactly that. Um, and you have the first four lines are exactly as in the play, as in the movie. But then he's, uh, he asks the messenger how many gentlemen. He says, but few of any sort and none of name. And then Leonardo says, a victory is twice itself when the achiever brings home full numbers. That's cut. That's not in there. But then he says, I find here that Don Pedro hath bestowed much honor on a young Florentine called Claudio. That's in the play, in the movie. The messenger, much deserved on his part and equally remembered by Don Pedro. Not in the movie. He hath borne himself beyond the promise of his age, doing in the figure of a lion, lamb the feats of a lion. In the movie. 
He hath indeed better, better expectation than you must expect of me to tell you how. Not in the movie. He hath an uncle here in Messina, says Leonardo. We'll be very much glad of it. Not in the movie. You know, and so it kind of goes on. Uh, so there's a little exchange about this uncle. Totally, there's about 10 lines, not in the movie. And then Beatrice, I pray you is Signor Montanto uh, t- returned from the wars or no. Um, uh, the messenger says, I know none of that name, lady. There was none such in the army of any sort. The first line is in the movie. The second line's not in the movie. You know, uh, what is it? What is he that you ask for, niece? Says Leonardo. That's not in the movie. But then Hero says, my cousin means Signor Benedict of Padua. So... It's sort it's, of on a line-by-line line basis, bits are just... Bits and pieces. And Beatrice's reply when uh, the messenger says, oh, he's returned, says, Beatrice in the play says, he set up his bills here in Messina and challenged Cupid at the flight, and my uncle's fool, reading the challenge, subscribed for Cupid and challenged him at the bird bolt. I pray you, how many hath he killed and eaten in these wars? But how many hath he killed? For indeed, I promised to eat all of his killing. First half of that is not in the movie. The second half is word for word. Um... So it's very word by word. And I think a lot of the cuts, uh, there's lots of reasons for them just looking through, often things that are harder to understand, I think, for a modern audience that need more references. Like they cut out the set up, the, set up his bills and challenged Cupid at the flight and my uncle's fool reading the challenge subscribed for Cupid and challenged him at the bird bolt. There's a lot of terminology of uh, challenge and duel and stuff in there that are hard to take in and so that was cut but then the next part where she jokes about him uh is in and all the way through there's like half lines and clauses out of lines cut Mm. partly this is possible i think because so much of this is in prose so one of the things about the play is a lot of it is in prose there are parts in 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 i am in blank verse but a large amount of it is written in pl- prose, so it's easier to cut without losing, losing the rhythm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not that it's played as poetry anyway, but so. So in terms of what's in and what's out, there's, as far as I can tell, nothing added except maybe a, you know, yes here or there or something like that to make dialogue. Nothing's added. One scene is moved. Yeah, and I found that quite disturbing. <laughs> which, which does mess up the plot. Um, can you get guess, John, which scene is out of place? You've only watched it once, so this is unfair. Well, so I actually, as I was watching it, checked the spark notes. Okay. Because the scene, and I don't know, I mean, I only checked the spark notes for like one scene. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if this is what you're referring to. But when through eavesdropping, Benedict finds out that Beatrice is supposedly in love with him. Mm-hmm. And then immediately the same thing happens to Beatrice. And mm-hmm. there's this lovely montage of them. Like she's swinging and yeah. he's, I think like playing around in a fountain or something. Yeah, I don't remember, yeah, yeah. but the, mo- it, it sounds kind of hokey, but the montage was actually quite nice. Oh, it's beautiful. Um, it's one of my favorite moments. Yeah. It, it very distinctively felt like an act break to me. Mm-hmm. Like it it kind of screamed, this is an act break. Mm-hmm. So I got on and I found a plot summary to see like if it indeed was an act break. And it seemed to me, and I mean, once again, I was only briefly skimming this, that those yeah. two events were not actually concurrent in the play. Um, Let me, it, it is close. Um... So clearly I answered the question wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's okay. The, the, I'll tell you what the scene is in a moment. Um, no, she, so it comes, it ends with, um, Benedict. So the, there is an, uh, an act break between the Benedict overhearing scene and the, uh, Beatrice overhearing scene. So act two ends with Benedict saying, ha, against my will, I am set to bid you come into dinner. There's a double meaning in that. Which <laughs> is, I mean, I love, I just love that whole scene. The whole scene of his overhearing is so fabulous. But anyway, um, I took no pains for this. And then I will, here's an example of what's left out. So he has that, there's a double meaning in this. I took no more pains for those thanks than you took pains to thank me. That's as much to say as any pains that I take for her, you is as easy as thanks. If I do not take pity of her, I am a villain. That's in the movie. The next line is, if I do not love her, I am a Jew. I will go get her picture. That's not in the movie. Not surprisingly. (laughs) And there's a couple of other places like that where they made cuts because they're like, well, that's offensive. (laughs) 
<laughs> we don't need to have that in. So that's obvious. But then the next act opens with Hero. So I guess this line is actually taken out. Um, here's some Hero dialogue that's cut. Hero telling Margaret to run to the parlor and tell my cousin Beatrice to uh, go wander in the garden because I and Ursula will be walking in the orchard and our whole discourses of her tell her to come and watch and come and listen. Um, and so then they go off and Hero tells Ursula what to do and then they sit and then you have the eavesdropping scene. So they do come. Oh, and look where Beatrice, like a lapwing, Mark, runs close by the ground to hear our conference. Uh, sorry, that's a reference to video research. Uh, so they do have those scenes right on their one another's heels, but there is an act break between them. So they've sort of shifted around where the break comes. And then the, yeah, so the rest of the act is then Claudio and Don Pedro and all the rest of it. The scene I was talking about is the scene where Benedict and Beat where Benedict is, uh, composing a poem for Beatrice that in the movie comes and she she comes in and talks to him that movie that in the movie comes after the scene where Claudio goes and sings it or hangs the poem on Hero's tomb but then at the end of that scene um Ursula comes running in saying oh you know my my lady the we we found out that uh, it was all a, a trick and done John has fled and all of that has happened and where it's everything's fine which it doesn't how make... could they possibly be only finding that out the next day is the thing because that's a daylight scene yeah and and so all of this all came to light before Claudio went and hung the poem on the tomb and it does not make sense that Benedict and Beatrice would be ignorant of all of this happening and all of the revelations for a whole day so and in, indeed in the play that scene comes right after the revelation scene but sort of in a way that makes it seem like it's concurrent right is the benedict goes and challenges claudio then wanders off and starts writing a poem and benedict and beatrice is waiting to hear what has happened with claudio which is why she goes and talks to him and asks him so what has passed between you and then that evening Claudio goes and hangs the poem and that all makes logical sense. So they've switched those around probably for just sort of pacing reasons, but it does leave it with the plot not actually making sense. But I think as far as I can tell, that's the only major disruption in the scene order other than little, you know, rearrangements of bits and pieces in one scene. Yeah, there's one question I had that I, I can't remember if the line was in uh, the film or not. Uh, but it gives a bit more motivation for why Don John specifically took the revenge he did was that he also had a grudge against Claudio because Claudio was instrumental in his defeat. Um, uh, no, that's not in the movie. That's not in the movie. That that makes why he would get revenge against his brother by messing up Claudio's... Yeah, I don't think it is... He does in the movie. In the movie, he does say uh, anything I can do against him is good because he. Maybe he does say instrumental in my defeat, but he doesn't make it very clear. Um, he says because he's so much in in my grace's favor, he's so much in my brother's favor, and so you know it, it makes it seem like he's just jealous of him because his brother. To be honest, I can't remember exactly what the line is in the plague. It's been a while since I read it, but there is a line that establishes that there is this additional motivation that he has a grudge against Claudio as well. well which should help a little because, yeah, basically he's, he's just he's a cardboard villain. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, he, he just delights in, in creating trouble, I guess. And, and, then, but... and then runs away. Like, yeah. he runs away before he's revealed, it seems. And so it's like he does this thing to mess things up and then he's like, ha-ha, I'll run away because I'm sure it'll all come to light somehow. <laughs> So it's like, well, this wasn't even for your own... What? <laughs> what is the purpose of this? You literally only did this to make trouble and don't care what the outcome is and it, whether it is it advantageous to you at all. Like, it doesn't... I, I will say I was very confused as to his motivations. Yeah, I, I don't think... And frankly, the play barely helps. Barely helps, yeah. <laughs> it's a tiny bit more 
logic to it. But, but even uh, so, it really is just grudge. Yeah. It's just grudge and revenge rather than uh, advancing. You know, normally Shakespeare villains want something out of what they're doing. You know, even Iago or something like that. They're not merely motivated by spite. They may be motivated by spite, but they also have something, pos- you know, something for themselves that they want to get out of whatever they're doing. They're not just there to create havoc. But Don John just seems, simply seems to be somebody who's just sort of the devil for no mm. reason. <laughs> so it does make it hard for Keanu to play it well, I've got to say. But he certainly doesn't do anything good with it. So before we go any deeper kind of in a discussion of mm-hmm. the movie as Shakespeare, I'd like to talk some more about deliberate choices that the movie made. Mm-hmm. So the first thing that comes to mind, and I'm going to have to defer to you on this, is Dogberry. Mm-hmm. Was he pretending to ride a horse because that's in the stage directions? <laughs> no. Is it an is it a nod to, you know, to the fact that this is typically presented on the stage? Is it just slapstick physical comedy? There's nothing in the script that suggests that. Now, all of the rest of it, all of his misspeakings and his ridiculousness, that's all in the script, obviously. Yes. But no, the riding the horse is a choice they made. I think it's probably just a Monty Python. Yeah, I think it's just meant to be over the top ridiculous. I agree it stands out as astonishingly ridiculous. I... Well, and the way the way that it was framed, I first expected his character to be part of the evil plot. Mm. Just because I'm so used to this concept of like the bumbling villain or, you know. Right. Sort of like Baraccio is a little bit. Yes. Yeah. The, the actual villain henchman who's drunken in that scene. So yeah. it took me, I think it was until the second scene that I actually realized that what he was doing was kind of being crucial to mm-hmm. uncovering the plot and then, re, you know, making things end up all happy yeah. at the end. Uh, unwittingly. And I think that that is sort of the, his role is to be the unwitting fixer of everything. Yeah. He doesn't even... He has no idea. grasp why yeah. the what the guy did wrong. He, you know, just sort of accuses him of. He mostly thinks he's just rude. Yeah. And, and yeah, so he doesn't know what he's caught or why he's caught. And I think that that is part of the point of the play is that uh, people with the best intentions mess everything up. And or some of them anyway do in the in the deceiving one another and the the all the deceptions are only undone by someone who himself doesn't understand the truth if that makes sense yes yeah um i also thought it was incredibly successful just as a comedy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i i I was sitting here laughing my ass off watching it yeah um the first thing that i noticed actually was during the masquerade Mm -hmm. which happens you know near the beginning Mm -hmm. uh i don't remember why but there was a shot that lingered on two people sitting on a fountain. Mm-hmm. And I think one of them had a mask on and they were talking. And in the background of this shot were two people kind of behind the fountain. And one, like every five seconds, would just kind of like pop up and hit the other and pop down. And the <laughs> other guy would like look around and nothing would happen. And then they just repeated that <laughs> gag like six or seven times in the background. There, I... Yeah, I mean, the, all the masquerade stuff is great. It's so beautifully, it's beautiful and it's um, highly dynamic and just sort of wonderful to watch. And funny, there's a whole bunch of little funny scenes and they're in there. The, the, the masquerade in the play just has those sort of one after another. And then at, at the end of every one, it just, the stage directions are retired to the background, <laughs> you know, basically. And each couple that comes in and has their little dialogue or whatever then sort of disappears, retires, I think is what it says. Um, so yeah, I thought, uh, I thought that was all well done with the sort of, um, highly ridiculous physical comedy going on and things. Yeah. I, I was just going to say that the, um, all the cuts, you know, reading through it because I've watched the film multiple times and haven't read the play very often. When I read through it, I sort of was nodding along going, yeah, oh yeah, totally cut that line. Oh yeah, yeah, of course you should cut that line. Oh no, <laughs> because once stripped, it's quite stripped down. But I do feel like he's pulled out the funniest lines and the best interactions and taken away the parts that are harder to get or that take more sort of work to figure out the joke. 
And what's left is feels surprisingly easy to understand mm -hmm. and easy to get all the jokes, if that makes sense. So, so was the physical comedy with the folding chair in the script or just no. added for the movie? No, it's no, there's there's never any uh, stage direction of that that elaborate I... in any of the plays. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I thought. But it seemed like such a specific gag to keep running because mm -hmm. it, it was like an eight minute gag going on. Like he walks out with the chair, he can't get it, then he hides yeah. and he keeps trying to and you know And then the one and then he falls down on the on the climax moment. But of course that that's a cliche of, of British comedy, the the uh Specifically beach chair gag. That, yeah, apparently when my the first time we watched it, uh, my dad the first time my dad watched it, he was I said how funny that, that scene was and dad was like, who's, my dad is a British backend, said, oh, well, I mean, that's like the longest running physical comedy gag in, in British film. No one can ever open those damn deck chairs. So that particular type of chair and that particular gag is is apparently I a see. stock British. Yeah. So that's so it's surely put in as a, as a kind of a nod to that. Mm -hmm, to the running gag. Okay. Yeah. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because I agree. When I first watched it, I mean, I thought it was very funny, but I also felt a little bit like you, like, there's got to be some reason. There's something behind, like there's something the audience is supposed to be knowing about this scene that I don't feel like I'm knowing. Yeah. Like there's a, there's an extra layer here I'm missing. And I think that's what it is. It's that it's a particular stock comic um, scene. So I will say um, as an architecture historian, this movie did one thing that I have always found kind of, I'm not going to say baffling, but curious, definitely. Mm -hmm. So they filmed at Villa Vigna Maggio. In, it's just outside of Florence. Mm -hmm. And I don't know anything specifically about this villa, and I didn't look it up, so I apologize. Mm -hmm. But um, it, it confirms conforms to this idea that we have that was largely built in the 19th century, um, kind of on the heels of the Great Tour, of the way that Italian villas should look, which is with this certain level of decay. Uh, you see patches of stucco that are missing from the walls and within this specific kind of frame of reference that we have this isn't seen as decay but rather as character mm -hmm. you know you, you you go to rome you walk around downtown rome or especially like trastevere uh, a lot of the buildings are going to have these patches of stucco missing the paint's going to be a little uneven but rather than view this as a sign of urban decay we we view this as a sign of of age of distinction of it's, in a sense, rustication. It's charming, and, yeah. Yes, exactly. And of course, that's not the way that these these villas would have been portrayed in their height. Mm -hmm. uh, it's merely a side effect of the fact that nobody really has the money or the desire to fully upkeep them. Right. But at the time, I mean, they would have been kept to a high state of polish, as it were. Exactly. And of course, like nobody expects them, one, to go in and refurb a villa because that's kind of... Uh, ethically suspect mm -hmm. but i you know it, it is just kind of fascinating that when we film within historical locations we don't actually give the proper history it's a real it, location but because it's a real location it's actually more false to the original setting than if you built exactly. a stage and did it like it would have looked at the time well, you've read my thesis, Avon. You know that this is something that I particularly care about, which is yeah. this idea that we think we're presenting history accurately, but we're only presenting what we view it as accurate because of our preconceptions of history that we've already inherited. Absolutely. So yeah. it's this weird Ouroboros of, of history and historiography eating itself. Um, yeah, no, I, I, think, I, I think that's exactly right. And I mean, that happens all the time in, in classical representations of the classical world as, for instance, filled with white marble. Uh, that's exactly yeah. what I was going to say. Is you watch Gladiator, and it's a beautiful presentation of Rome, but there's no polychromy there. Yeah, they 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 give us the statues the way we expect to see the statues because of the way statues are now, not the way that the statues were in Rome, because that is so far out of our understanding of what the statues looked like that it would jar on us and look ahistorical. It would look yes. wrong to make it right. Yeah. It also. It also brought up a question for me that 
it's not really a question. I suppose it's more of a discussion point. But there's a lot of scenes set in the garden and a lot of mm-hmm. scenes around the fountain. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that we as a, as a contemporary society really understand like the prestige that was placed on a decorative fountain mm-hmm. in the Renaissance. Yeah. Because that implied one plumbing to a continual source of water but Mm -hmm. three and almost most importantly was the ability to uh, create artificial pressure within that water system Mm -hmm. so i think the most famous example of this is the fact that in versailles supposedly they had you know this whole field of windmills just to pump the water and that still wasn't enough to power all of the fountains in the garden so they had to have like teams of, of, of laborers that would kind of precede the king and turn on the fountains in the area that he was in and turn them off when he left to maintain an adequate water pressure. Right. And now this is me getting really pedantic about the architecture and straying a bit, but it's just like, these are the signs of prestige mm-hmm. that we don't really read as being that prestigious anymore. Yeah. And the ability to, uh, in Italy, even more than in France, uh, to waste the water too, because, you know, Italy's not, it depends on the place, depends on the part, I suppose. But it, you know, water matters. You use it for agriculture, you use it. He's got these extensive vineyards, he's got all of this stuff to be able to use it for decorative purposes uh, and not for anything else is absolutely a mark of, of extreme wealth. Uh, and that is true today as well, if you look at what's going on in Southern California. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. No, in certain places, it's even more obvious. You know, we don't think of that, for instance, uh, Canada, you know, where we are in Canada, water is soup water and clean water are super abundant. So we don't think of them as high status elements. But even even near us, there are you know reserves with clean drinking water uh, and the uh, Native Canadian reserves. Um, So that it is, in fact, it's a uh, taken for granted luxury, but it's actually still very much a status thing. One other thing that I found a little odd was at the end when uh, Claudio and Hero get married for mm-hmm. real, mm-hmm. and then Benedict and Beatrice are going to get married, mm-hmm. but they're both too proud to admit that they love each other mm-hmm. to the whole crowd. And then finally, you know, all, all is revealed. At the end of that, the two happy couples are kind of presented together and they embrace. And it struck me as a little weird that. Benedict embraced Claudio and Beatrice embraced Hero because like Beatrice and Hero are cousins already and like Benedict and Claudio like came in the mm-hmm. same party like it I don't know it just like struck me as a little odd I would think that they would be embracing their newest relation right mm. well I think the Benedict and Claudio embrace was key because they were reconciling yeah they were I, and, and, I, and I understood that so so yes. because of that I guess for parallelism you have Benedict and uh, Beatrice and Hero, but I, I see what you mean. The the ties, the newly created ties, would seem to be the ones sort of required. But I guess it's the healed ties that are being emphasized in the mm-hmm. staging. But there was never any like, there's never any discord between Hero and Beatrice. No. So I was I was fine with the with with Claudio and Hero embracing. It was just, it struck me as weird then when. And I, and I guess it maybe it was just like in a loving way, like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm so happy for you. Yeah, I guess. But yeah, it was and just like restored, visually kind of strange. Yeah, sort of the restored to life, re- the recognition. I mean, not, not that Beatrice thought she was dead, but still the kind of re, the restoration of the new hero. Yeah. Um, How'd you like the music? I really liked it. Yeah. Especially during the the scene that I mentioned previously that felt kind of like, a an act break mm-hmm. where they're all happy and it was just you know it was beautiful and lovely and typically when films kind of slowly fade one film strip over the other mm-hmm. it feels kind of weird but as that entire scene was just incredibly effective very joyful very mm-hmm. happy um and i actually have the hey nani nani song stuck in my head right now so absolutely even the, scene, <laughs> even the scenes uh where the music was presented diegetically i thought it was very successful yeah, as soon as we said we were going to watch the movie, I started having the Hey Nani Nani set in my head, and I've been singing it off and on, off and on to myself ever since. I find it incredibly catchy. And that whole last scene, the last uh, film scene after he says, Let us, you know, let's go dance, and they all erupt into the courtyard and dance, with the repetition of the song over and over again, it just it fills me with joy. 
It's just one of the most purely joyful film scenes. And that's one long shot. There's no, uh, there's no cut. From when they leave. From, they, from when they say the that last line until the crane shot at the very end. And the camera moves through hallways and then somehow ends up on a crane. So I imagine that the cameraman must have kind of stepped back onto a crane and after sort of following through the little courtyard and the little hallway. And through a whole bunch of um, archways in the in the maze, in the, yeah. uh, uh, what are they called? Hedge maze. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, then them and then must step onto a crane, which then lifts him up to do the uh, the overall the final, final shot. shot. Yeah, yeah. That that's the kind of like technical filmmaking stuff that I found really fascinating when I was younger and would just spend hours watching on mm -hmm. you know behind the scenes in DVDs and stuff like that. Uh, is is that kind of the artistry that goes into making a mm -hmm. film that most people aren't even really consciously aware of? No, and that in fact the filmmakers would probably be quite annoyed to if 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 most people noticed the shots yeah. because they're supposed you know you're supposed to not be thinking about how the film is made then they appreciate it when a few people notice the artistry of particular shots but i mean they're not they're certainly not usually doing them so that you notice the shot well i but i feel like nobody is going to try and execute a seamless long tracking shot in which a steady cam then gets onto a Crane. crane like nobody's going to try that unless they want people to at least in a certain extent be impressed by it yeah though i think it also f does make that whole end scene flow beautifully in a way that it wouldn't if you cut yeah it has this sweeping effect of of drawing back of, of tying everything together There's we see so everything happen different like movements along different axes you've got sort of the movement through yeah corridors and things and, and then, everyone's spinning and then, in the dances yeah. so that there's all this movement but but also that pulling out from the little and then up into the crane shot sort of symbolically or or metaphorically ties everything together the little story of the weddings rises up into the whole villa and its happiness and that double plotting that you're talking about mm -hmm. everything restored to peace everything in tranquility joy and celebration not just for the two couples but for everybody because now don don john has left and uh, uh, don pedro is in charge and everything's good again so there's this sort of tying of the particular to the general that that shot that starts on their faces and ends as a crane shot seeing the whole villa i think it does actually matter that it's all one shot but i agree john i'm sure they also felt oh people will think this is pretty cool <laughs> but i think to an extent that's also just kind of a, a a way to portray in film what you would do on the stage which is just have everybody come onto yeah. the stage yeah and have an ensemble um, finish yeah exactly so i'm i think those are mostly all of the discussion points i had about it as a movie unless you have anything else to bring up well i have one one thing kind of related to the casting um, that has to do a bit with a, with an idea I had about the play itself. Um, I mean, it, it's often said about the play that it's, it's about deception, but specifically it seems to me it's about the kind of loose relationship between words and motives so that it's not just that they kind of uh, fake the, the affair uh, between hero and Boraccio, but that, he specifically says, I wooed Margaret in Hero's name. And then at the end, uh, when uh, Beatrice and Benedict are um, uh, in that in that final scene, uh, they're, uh, they say, well, we're betrayed by our own words. Here's our words against our Here's hearts. Here's our words against mm -hmm. our hearts. Um, and so it's, it's this idea of, of the, the kind of loose relationship between what the words say on the surface and what lies behind them always. And I wonder if one of the, th one of the, the reasons that um, Brana made the choices he did about casting is he wanted to get actors who would perform Shakespeare with a modern idiom, if you will, because that's mm -hmm. something that he's really good at, right? Yeah. He'll say that the words of Shakespeare but his inflection and his motivation and his action is all really contemporary. 
Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that stands out when you said it was a good comedy, John, and what I meant about stripping out the bits of dialogue that didn't mm-hmm. work so well. Like, there's large amounts where if you didn't know, you were, well, you might very well think, wait, surely that was written to add in. That can't have been what Shakespeare said, because it sounds so uh, contemporary and current and idiomatic. Mm-hmm. And, and they really, all of those actors brought that out really mm-hmm. well. And so for most of the major parts, he picks actors who aren't, particularly Shakespearean actors. Mm-hmm. He's got a few maybe more more experienced Shakespearean actors in some of the more minor roles, but you know all the big roles yeah, that's true. are, you know, these kind of big kind of Hollywoody type stars. Mm-hmm. Um and I wonder if this was an attempt on his part to try and make a break with the the usual kind of received pronunciation mm-hmm. uh really dry renditions of shakespeare really stagey renditions of shakespeare where they sound like they're you know reading shakespeare as or, opposed to acting a character where or where where there's that kind of level of disconnect that, that automatically comes up oh i'm hearing shakespearean mm-hmm. dialogue mm-hmm. however emotive and everything else it is because mm-hmm. but yeah and, and it, unfortunately it's not always successful i mean keanu reeves mm-hmm. sounds like he's a high school student you know re- reading a memorized <laughs> passage for class or something yeah. um denzel washington is is a bit on and off sometimes he does it really well mm-hmm. and occasionally it sounds kind of artificial mm-hmm. but um Because some of the dialogue is just so Mm -hmm. Shakespearean sounding, you know, dost thou or something comes Mm -hmm. out and and you think that's just odd to hear in your voice. But yeah, but most of the time he's pretty good, particularly in the sort of more comic bits. He comes alive. Yeah. 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 Go ahead, Joe. That that does address something that has always annoyed me uh, is, you know, like you said, this received pronunciation version of Shakespeare. And part of this is, is, is just me being an American, I think, but I really, really hate received pronunciation for the most part. Like it just radiates stodginess to me. Mm-hmm. And I, I've tried listening to like some of the BBC podcasts and so like their news breaks and stuff. And I can't do it because that's such a specifically coded accent to me that it's not mm-hmm. like I, it's not like I physically dislike it. It's like, I have been coded myself to hate that accent and what it represents. Mm-hmm. Um, part of this is also like the little Marxist in me, like who, as, as an idealist, went to the United Kingdom when I was very young. And then I was like, oh, my God, classism is still, like, majorly ingrained in the society. Yeah. Um, so, and especially when you look at the history of the way that accents in the United Kingdom have evolved, that's entirely, uh, entirely just kind of a put on. Mm-hmm. So it was really nice to see something that was a lot more approachable. And, you know, like with Denzel Washington, he's not really... I mean, there's a little affectation to his speech, but for the most part, it's recognizably Denzel Washington and what mm-hmm. he would do normally in any other situation. Yeah. And and I mean, I definitely appreciated that the American accents were left as American. I mean, they're not, you know, they're not massively regional American accents or anything, but Washington is not trying to put on any kind of British accent, receive pronunciation, pronunciation or otherwise. And neither, you know, and neither are the other American actors. They're just, that's actually where Keanu kind of, falls down a bit there's almost a little bit of attempt maybe it's he sounds too canadian maybe that's the problem but uh, <laughs> you know there's a little more brit there's a little more false britishness somehow to the way he pronounces his shakespeare than everybody else and that's part of i don't know i, I don't well, know exactly I, I, what it is that stands out that's so off-putting in his scenes but it really is and, and the, the fact of the matter is that if you are in sicily in this period mm-hmm. everybody's going to have a different accent mm-hmm yeah, yeah. There's a there's a real um, mingling, and that makes complete sense historically, and also for Shakespeare, too. Like whether you talk about the historical period it's set in, notionally, though. Frankly, I can't believe that Shakespeare had any firm grasp of the historic historicity of the, uh, the context, um, or whether you think of it Shakespeare's time and the mingling of accents, and then obviously not received pronunciation of that accents, those accents too. Yeah, I, I just, I feel like it's very, I mean, lines like, here comes uh, Dan, Don, Don Pedro and Monsieur Love. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, that you hear that and you'd think, there is no way Shakespeare wrote that. But you look and, yep, it's Monsieur Love. <laughs> right <laughs> there. And you're like, okay. But he does the exact right modern interpretation of that line. <laughs> and because it's been like that the whole way through, it doesn't sound, it doesn't throw you off and you don't yeah. suddenly, it doesn't sound jagged. Mm-hmm. It just sounds... And he is so now. I mean, it it really stands out how good an actor he is at doing Shakespeare. 
uh, how natural he sounds speaking those words mm -hmm. as if that is how he speaks all the time. There, I mean, there's no forced. He doesn't have to do anything to get the meaning across. Yeah, that whole um, monologue, his monologue after the overhearing is uh it, it is definitely one of my favorite parts of the movie uh where he because and you know well make her she must be proud you know uh, what is it uh, virtuous or i'll not sully her all of that part and then um and let her hair be oh what pleases god uh and uh the world must be peopled <laughs> 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 So, I, I got a hearty chuckle. Yeah, that. I mean, it's genuinely funny. And it doesn't feel at all like I am doing a Shakespeare monologue, you know, which is a, I am doing a soliloquy it, it, at all. It feels completely like so, this is so normal with, language. Mm -hmm. With regards to some of the language, um, and this, this podcast will be released after Star Wars comes out. <laughs> but I watched the movie on Tuesday night before Star Wars came out. And as anybody who is obsessed with Star Wars <laughs> as me will know, the reviews were posted at 3 a.m. Wednesday. Oh. <laughs> Eastern Standard Time. So I like was, after I finished this movie, I immediately went to my, uh, NewYorkTimes.com, navigated to the art section, and just kept refreshing it until I saw the <laughs> review. Okay, you have to be very careful what you say here because I don't read reviews or anything before we watch this movie, and we're not going to see it till like after Christmas. It's hopeless. I'm totally going to be spoiled. But anyway, go on. <laughs> well, well. So thankfully, I've avoided any spoilers, mm -hmm. and and I, I am such a diehard Star Wars person that of the 15 or so reviews I started reading, I started crying in basically every single one. <laughs> Because the general theme was Star Wars is back. But anyway. Oh, good. Okay. As, that's good. <laughs> as I was re uh, uh, reloading this page waiting for Star Wars to pop up, the very first review in the art section of NewYorkTimes.com was review. And these paper bullets, a chance to twist and shout. Uh. And so I thought, huh, these paper bullets. It's almost like I've heard that phrase in the last 30 minutes. <laughs> uh, so, of course, I clicked this review. And as it turns brain. out, mm -hmm. as it turns out, an off-Broadway musical uh, has just opened called These Paper Bullets, which is a musical version of Much Ado About Nothing set in the 60s with a Beatles-style band providing the music for what goes on in the in the show. And weirdly enough, the music was written by Billy Joe Armstrong of Green Day. <laughs> I'm doing 60s music, okay. So if anybody wants to see Green Day doing a Beatles homage <laughs> musical version of Much Ado About Nothing, you have until January 10th to see this. That is a that funny coincidence. Really yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These paper bullets of the brain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that is that is that's funny. I hadn't heard about that, and I'm sure we won't manage to see it. But you know, we can read up on it. <laughs> Add it to our store of knowledge. I mean, Much Ado does seem to be one of the comedies that gets most often uh, done, mm. uh, adapted along with Twelfth Night and uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, and I prefer it to both of those, for the record. Um, I just, as, as a movie, as a play. Beatrice is just such a great character. And the Beatrice Benedict um interaction i mean it makes the whole play and it is so good that they are so beautifully done in this movie because obviously without it all the rest of the wonderful things of the movie just wouldn't work and i know well, there's you know personal history between brenna and thompson and all the rest of it but when we first saw the movie they were still married and yes. uh, well so I, I tweeted as I was watching this. I don't know if you saw my tweet. I saw your tweet start to go by and I said to Mark, I have to turn off Twitter because I don't want to be spoiled <laughs> on John's reaction. <laughs> uh, I said, it's appropriate that Kenneth Branagh's character is named Benedict because that, <laughs> that is what he has been to Emma Thompson. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that there is that that comes in afterwards. But um, this movie and Henry V, in which she also has a small and important but, uh, role, um, and the combination of the two is it is lovely to see them together. They did, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that personally there were different problems, but because they do work so beautifully together as a couple, you know, their interactions play off one another and they, they balance each other really nicely. The scene in the chapel, um, I think, is also one of the places where you really see their quality as actors. 
the where it where um after the first false me- after the first wedding is disrupted and Beatrice is crying and he comes to her and they and he goes bet- they they go back and forth between or they go from sort of flirting chiding he makes his declaration of love and her declaration of love and then you know what can i do for you kill claudio and it turns and the, the grief there i think that scene is so, is so beautifully done by both of them um the balance between we have this personal thing that's really important to us but this other thing is so grave and problematic and how do i how do i handle both of these at once um really you know give a weight to the whole play that claudio and hero don't claudio's distress and hero's distress are pitiable but they don't like it's because beatrice is so unhappy that i am so unhappy about the way that hero is treated i mean it's 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 bad seeing her mistreated by claudio you feel shocked by it but it's to me beatrice's grief that really makes it all so important because hero and claudio are just such trivial characters and that's no disrespect to the actors that's a that's in shakespeare they're i think intentionally fairly trivial shallow characters and it's it's beatrice's grieving that makes it matter um, so to return briefly to the personal history be- behind <laughs> that Kenneth Branagh and Emmett Thompson, I tried finding this post and I couldn't. Uh, several weeks ago, I saw a post on Tumblr, of course, which uh, was just a string of images from Harry Potter. And it was like that weird feeling when you realize that this and this were married. And it was, you know, yeah. Gilderoy Lockhart and um, Professor Trelawney. Mm-hmm. And then somebody posted a picture of their wedding outfits, which, of course, was just absolutely ridiculous. And then somebody else replied, oh, it gets weirder because he cheated on her with yeah. um, with Bellatrix Lestrange. And, you know, it's just like this weird uh, interplay that goes on behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and then, of course, this movie also or Much Ado About Nothing also having Imelda Staunton in a rather small role, admittedly. But like it's like almost impossible to watch certain uh, British films without multiple characters who later appeared in Harry, Harry Potter, Potter. Yeah. Yeah. being in it. Well, there's so many parts in Harry Potter, I guess that. Uh, yeah, and everybody it. wanted to. And be everyone in it. wanted to be in it. So yeah. all the names that everybody recognizes. But I was just going to say, even just as a larger thing, the British acting world is pretty small, yeah. and so everybody in it that we would know is has married one of the other people in it or has slept with them or has been in 16 films with them or directed something with, I mean, like it's a very incestuous community in that way. So you get that whole uh, situation coming up in weird uh, continuing uh, new arrangements of the relationships between them. And that always can end up being a strange underlying element to, uh, to whatever plot you're actually watching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So what, do you have any specific favorite moments you want to identify other than the entire movie? <laughs> um, well, as I said, I think the Benedict's overhearing scene, the scene where he overhears is just so beautifully played. Even the, uh, like the soundtrack and the way the music points, the sort of little moments and the way that, um, the prince and Signor Leonato and Claudio do their, you know, are the moment when they're when Signor Leonato is trying to come up with a good example of how Beatrice is is unhappy or loves Benedict and he can't in there, and then suddenly he comes up with some word of relief and and just like the the choreography of that scene, I think, is so great. I could watch that over and over and over again, and then the uh, and then. Uh, Brana's treatment of the monologue afterwards. So I think that maybe stands out as my favorite. Yeah, I, I definitely like the yeah Brano's, um soliloquy moments like that and his his delivery of those lines, and also the the, the kind of wordplay banter between um, Benedict and Beatrice, which is that I you know that idea of uh, the relationship between word and intention and the way that they twist each other's words the way they deliver that mm-hmm. um, like in that first scene when they first meet mm-hmm. the way just the way that they they deliver that and make that wordplay work 
uh, so well um, because I really like those lines. So mm -hmm. it's it's good to see them performed like that. Mm -hmm. And my favorite bit is just Emma Thompson insulting people <laughs> with with Shakespearean English. I I could just like I need a like a relaxation tape of that. It's <laughs> something it's it's something about it is like so soothing to me. It's like very vindicating and satisfying mm -hmm. that I just kind of get calm. Yeah. I so, seriously, I thought it was very well performed. Nearly everybody in the cast did a great job. Yeah. And I mean, you started with and I think we could end with Branna, you know, Branna is a, 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 an, he does a great job directing it and he is a very, very good actor, especially at Shakespeare. Like he has his drawbacks as an actor, but, but his strengths are absolutely on show in this movie. But the movie for me is the radiance of Emma Thompson. She is just utterly, she's gorgeous and she's wonderful. And I just want to watch, just what you're saying, John, I want to watch her and listen to her and just, just adore her. That's sort of the sunny warmth of Italy and Emma Thompson or what the movie is for me in, the, in an impressionistic way. So I would end on that again. Just Emma Thompson's just so radiant. All right. Well, so I've, I've picked our movie for next time. Uh-huh. And I've decided since we've basically just done comedies. Right. We're going to do King Lear. Oh, oh Okay. And which one? And specifically, we're going to watch Ron. Ah, okay. Which is Akira Kurosawa's, I think it's from 1985. Uh, it is a version of Ron that is set in medieval Japan. Uh, it's just a version of Ron. It is a version of King <laughs> Lear that is set in medieval Japan, uh, typically regarded to be one of his best films. Okay. Yes, 1985 is when it came out. I believe it was the most expensive Japanese production of its time. Uh, it's relatively well regarded in the cinematic community. Uh, not that the IMDb 250 really has much meaning as an academic rank, <laughs> but it's number 132 on IMDb right now, and it's 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 a bit it's basically a Japanese epic, but it is an adaptation of King Lear. Okay. So since since we you know we went from kind of a a teen comedy to a faithful interpretation, yeah. I thought it would be interesting yeah. to see now something that is still rather faithful in terms of following the story rather than just being inspired by it, but that is set in an entirely well, different lines, culture. Yeah. Because one one thing that I really love, and for me this primarily manifests, mm -hmm. yes, yes. Um, for me, this primarily manifests as opera. One thing I love about opera, but also about just, you know, this canon that we have of drama is, is you know, you can do a straight presentation of it or you can maintain, you know, not be inspired by it. You can maintain the text, but do a very, very different interpretation thereof. Mm -hmm. um, so you, I, I wanted to go down this, this aisle as well. All right. Sounds good. That'll definitely be a change. It's something we haven't seen. So that'll yeah. be fun. I'm looking forward to that. Have you seen any Akira Kurosawa films? I don't actually know if I have. I'm, I'm, mm. All right. So, yeah, so you're in for a good. treat. It'll be good. It's, it's not, it's not the, I mean, it is a classic by this point, but I think the most classic Akira Kurosawa film is Seven Samurai, yeah. Yeah. which is largely um, the inspiration for Star Wars. Yeah. So maybe yeah. you should watch that as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll try and get it in. We find it, uh, it's always surprisingly hard to actually watch a whole movie in our <laughs> lives right now. Yeah. But... <laughs> I, I, I can understand that. But yeah, okay, so we'll we'll get on that and we'll obviously there's the holidays in between, so we'll have to uh, reconvene in January for sure and uh, get to that. All right. Well, this has been great. Well, happy holidays, John, and enjoy the uh, turning of the year. You too. <laughs> Indeed. Thanks for listening to As We Like It. You can find more episodes and more information about the show at theextracurricular.com and find more about Avon and Mark's other projects at alliterative.net. If you enjoyed today, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes or Stitcher, as your five stars can really help us reach new listeners. You can reach us all on Twitter. I'm at alliterative. I'm at Avon Sarah, A-V-E-N-S-A-R-A-H. And I'm at John Vox, J-O-N-V-O-X.
Yeah, I, I'm I'm lucky in that New York City has probably the most ef- efficiently designed uh, municipal water system, mm-hmm. and I would say I would argue the Western Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's yeah. just an, a work of of, of pure Me- beauty. But mechanical we're really art. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> but yes, this yes. is probably not really too important to the. the I'm probably going to cut this bit out. Anyway, 